The following message is from Ridgewood Church in Greer, South Carolina. For more information, visit RidgewoodGreer.com. So one time I was in a maze, okay? I was uh, going to this maze. It was in a cabin, which was the first problem. It was in the middle of the woods, which was the second problem. And the third problem was that I was doing this at night. So it was totally dark, and I was going to this maze in the middle of the woods, and it was quite frightening. And so as I'm going into this maze, which I voluntarily paid to do, I was met with the reality that it was pitch black. I walk in the door, they shut the door behind me, and I'm just left in this hallway, and it is pitch black. Like, it is so dark in this hallway that if I would have gone to slap myself, I still would not have seen it coming. That's how dark it was. It was so pitch black in this room that I had no idea what was taking place. And so I'm doing all of the things that they teach you to do, right, to get out of a maze, to find your way out of a dark room, to get out of a situation. And so I'm like screaming for help and trying to frantically search for a way out of this maze. And I've exhausted every trick in the book. I've kept my hands on the wall. I'm trying to feel my way around. I'm trying to grab for anything that I can to maybe turn on a light to try and give me a sense of comfort in this really dark maze, And after about 10 minutes of bumping into almost every wall and meeting dead end after dead end, I finally see a glimmer of hope. There is a ray of the moonlight that is just shining towards the exit. And so, as I naturally would do, I walk quickly to go out of this exit so that I can find my way out and get my way to safety and get out of this pitch black maze. Maybe you have a story or an experience that's similar to this where You've experienced something where you've been in a situation where it's been really dark. It's been uh, maybe a really confusing and disorienting time, whether it be physically, like you're stuck in a maze like I was, or maybe it was spiritually or mentally where you maybe had a light bulb moment and you felt at peace and you were able to find your way out or think through a certain situation. Now, we are in our third week of studying Acts chapter 13, and this is a really long chapter. We've got 52 verses, and that's why we've spent three weeks in this chapter, and there are three main focuses to this chapter. First, the first week, we saw that the church in Syrian Syrian Antioch sent Paul and Barnabas on their first missionary journey. They prayed and they fasted, and the Spirit um, just revealed to them that Paul and Barnabas were prepared, they were equipped, and called to do the ministry of evangelism. They were to be missionaries. And so the church in Antioch sends them out, and they go to Cyprus, and they meet this man named Elamas, who uh, was a magician. The Lord uh, blinds Elamas because he was um, leading the Lord's righteous astray, and then the Proconsul of the area, Sergius Paulus, believed the word that was spoken to him by Paul and Barnabas. And last week, secondly, we journeyed with Paul and Barnabas to Perga, where they came to Pisidian Antioch, and Paul delivered his first sermon in the synagogue there. And Paul told those present in the synagogue three things. He told them to listen to the scriptures, he told them to know what is offered to them in Christ, and then to beware of the judgment that awaits them should they neglect to believe this gospel. So that leaves us with a third focus that we look at this morning, which is the light coming to the Gentiles. So if you're ready to dive into the Word together this morning, give me an amen. 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 All right, let's look. I'm going to back up a little bit. We're going to start in verse 42 um, and then make our way to 44 and 45. So starting in verse 42, it says, As they went out, which is as they were leaving the synagogue, the people begged that these things might be told to them the next Sabbath. 
And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many of the Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke to them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. And so that's where we left off last week. And so a week passes, and here in verse 44, we begin the journey with Paul and Barnabas this morning. Verse 44, it says, The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And so what we see in this text is first, not only did these people respond by begging Paul and Barnabas to return, but this time, a week later, almost the whole city showed up. And it's just amazing to see what the gospel can do to even just stir curiosity in people. And so droves of people have shown up to hear the word of the Lord, to hear these things be told to them once more. And so obviously this was before the age of Facebook and before Instagram, before Twitter. It was before TV and radio. And so how do these people know to come? Well, though the text isn't entirely clear, we can at least guess that whether by word of mouth from those that were present the previous week or through the work of Paul and Barnabas during the week in the marketplace or in the temples, wherever they might have gone, that people respond in mass to the curious or the, in curiosity to Jesus, and they respond in mass this Sabbath morning. And so, an interesting thing to note when, when dealing with this text in, in Pisidian Antioch is that Pisidian Antioch was a more Gentile-heavy city. There weren't a lot of Jews present. This was a heavily Gentile city. And so, when we see in the text that it says, almost the whole city gathered together to hear the word of the Lord, we can assume and know that this means Gentiles were heavily present. And so when we see that uh, it says in verse 45 that the uh, Jews were filled with jealousy, it's because these Gentiles showed up. And so obviously the Jewish leaders didn't like that. So let's look at verse 45. It says, But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy, and they began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And so because the large crowd of people who were predominantly Gentile, because they showed up to receive the word of the Lord, to hear about God's promises to them that were offered in Christ, the Jews were filled with jealousy. And so you think, though, why is that? Last week, they invited them to come back. They asked them to even teach in the synagogue. Then they begged them to come back the next week. And now this week, they're starting to contradict what Paul is saying. And you're just like, why? Like, what, 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 what changed in the previous, in the previous week? And so when we look at this text, we see that the Jewish leaders, to them, it was one thing to proclaim the coming of the Messiah to the Jews, but it was quite another thing to proclaim that in the Messiah, which is in Jesus, that God has accepted the Gentiles on an equal basis to the Jews. And so in their jealousy, the Jewish leaders are thinking to themselves, surely, surely God would not save those people without becoming like one of us without having to come through the circumcision, without having to follow the law, without having to live in the way that we live. It's probably what the Jews were thinking. And even some translations here, instead of using the word um, reviling, they use the term blaspheming. And the reason that they do this is to even show that when the Jewish leaders are speaking against Paul, they're not only speaking against Paul, they're speaking against the word of God. And by virtue of speaking against the word of God, they've basically blasphemed God and even his promises to the Jews. Let's look at how Paul and Barnabas respond to this blasphemy spoken by the Jewish leaders. Look, at, look with me in verse 46. It says, And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, since you thrust aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. 
For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, so that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And so in these two verses, we see kind of three things that are fleshed out. We see, uh, look with me here in the first half of verse 46. It says, And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, which is to the Jews. And so what, what, what does that mean? What do Paul and Barnabas mean here by saying that the word of God was necessary first to be spoken to the Jews? Well, looking at the Old Testament, traveling back in time, we're looking at the Old Covenant, we're looking at the Old Testament, we see that the Jews are God's chosen people. So God chose the Jewish people to be the way that he would demonstrate his love, that he would demonstrate his holiness to the nations and to the world. And so he establishes a covenant with Abraham back in Genesis that all peoples on the earth will be blessed. And this promised blessing, we know, came through Christ, who was born a Jew under the law. He fulfilled the law and then died a once-for-all sacrifice on the cross for all those who would place their faith in him. And so when Paul and Barnabas speak of the word being necessary first to speak to the Jews, he's just honoring the Jews as God's chosen people who have been waiting for the Messiah. They want them to first be made aware of the promise that is found in God and in the Messiah. Paul uses a similar statement like this in, in, in other passages. He uses one similar to this in Romans 1.16 where it says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Now, this doesn't mean that Gentiles weren't welcomed into uh, Israel at this time. That didn't mean that they couldn't become like the Jews. It just meant that the way that they became like the Jews looked different. The way they became part of Israel looked different. So Paul and Barnabas just recognize the unique relationship Jews have to the Messiah because of their covenant relationship to God. And so this is why as we even continue throughout the book of Acts, we're going to see that on all of these missionary journeys, Paul goes to the synagogues of a city first before he goes anywhere else because he honors the Jews as God's chosen people. But what we see here to their own demise is that some of the Jews would not receive the message of their own promised Messiah. Look at the second half of verse 46. It says, Since you thrust aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. And so here the Jews receive, because of their blaspheming, a very harsh and strong indictment by Paul that they judge themselves unworthy of eternal life. That by their denial of their own promised Messiah, the one who has come to save God's people, to be the one who welcomes God's chosen people into Israel, by their own denial of this promised Messiah, through their unbelief, they have judged themselves unworthy of eternal life. And they thrust aside the very promise given to them as God's chosen people. And so, what do Paul and Barnabas do? Well, it says they move to the Gentiles. Their proclamation of the gospel moves to the Gentiles. Look with me, verse 47. It says, For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. Here the missionaries quote Isaiah 49, 6, which uh, is a proclamation. They use this as a proclamation that God has called his people to be a light for the nation so that salvation may reach the ends of the earth. I'm going to read Isaiah 49.6 here just so we kind of have the whole verse together. It'll be on the screen. Isaiah 49.6 it says, It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. 
I will make you as a light for the nations, that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Now, within this context of Isaiah, we see that the you that is being made a servant and the you that is being made a light is referring to someone who is called the servant of the Lord. And now today, when we look back on this text, we understand and see that this is speaking of Christ, who, who was the servant of the Lord, who came as a light to the nations. And that without Christ's atoning work on the cross, there would be no salvation, even for the Jews, that the Jews are even saved through Christ's work on the cross. Yet God, through Christ, has opened up salvation to the world and invites us to be part of his chosen people. And so in this, we see kind of the first main point of this entire text, which is Jesus is the light of salvation that reaches to the ends of the earth. We even see in this Isaiah 49, 6, that it is too light of thing for God to only save the Jews. It's too light of thing to only raise up the tribes of Jacob. And so we see this, that through Jesus, the servant of the Lord, God has always planned to give the nations the ends of the earth. They've, he's planned to give them the light of salvation. And so as we see that Paul and Barnabas move to the Gentiles here, we also see that they use this passage referring to themselves. And so how does that make sense? Look back, verse 47 with me one more time. It says, For so the Lord has commanded us, being Paul and Barnabas, saying, I, referring to the Lord, have made you, referring to Paul and Barnabas, a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. So how can we, how can we make sense of this? That we see, okay, within the context of Isaiah 49, we see that the servant of the Lord is Jesus, but in this passage here, Paul and Barnabas are using this, referring to themselves, that they are a light to the Gentiles. So what does Paul think about the fulfillment of Isaiah 49.6? Well, I think it's clear here that Paul is not inserting himself into the text to be the servant of the Lord. He understands that uh, the Lord, that Christ was the servant of the Lord who came. He was the promised Messiah. He is the light of salvation that is brought to the ends of the earth. What Paul is doing here is basically adding an extension to Isaiah 49 where he He's basically saying that by virtue of being a Christian, we too have become the light of the world. We are little reflections of light. I think of, as an example, even if you uh, see something or you have a mirror, let's say you go outside with a mirror, um, and the light shines on the mirror and it reflects the light, and it's obviously not as powerful as if it was coming from the sun, but there's still a reflection of this light that's being distributed. And I think in a similar way, that's what Paul is envisioning Christians are. In this text, when we have become a light to the Gentiles, he's basically seeing himself as a mirror that is reflecting uh, the ultimate light, who is Christ. He's reflecting that and then bringing that to the Gentiles. And so, Paul is just thinking of himself as a little reflection of the light that Christ brings. Even Jesus uses similar language in Matthew five fourteen through 15. He says, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. And so we see that the function of light is to expel the darkness, it is to expose what is hidden. 
And so Paul and Barnabas have come to expel the darkness to be a light to the Gentiles by proclaiming to them that Christ is the Messiah, who is the ultimate light of salvation that goes to the ends of the earth. This is also a fulfillment of what Jesus says in Acts 1.8 that says, Jesus speaks to the disciples, he says, but you will receive the power, or you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. So what we see taking place here is in Acts 13, verses 46 through 47, we see the plan of God as spoken by Christ himself in Acts and then even prophesied by Isaiah in the Servant of the Lord passage that the plan of God is unfolding, that salvation is extending, it's reaching to the ends of the earth, it's welcoming the Gentiles into the gospel. And this is great news. I mean, this is fantastic news for us, that because of this, all of us, or most of us sitting in this room here, Ridgewood, Greer, South Carolina, some 2,000 years after this passage, some thousands of miles away, because of this, we have been welcomed into a covenant relationship with the Lord. Because salvation has extended past the Jews, and it has extended to us, who are the Gentiles. Abraham, Isaiah, Paul, Barnabas, none of them would have even had a concept that North America would have existed. They have no idea that South Carolina is a place. They have no idea that Ridgewood Greer would be meeting here this morning at 10 a.m., but yet here we are with the gospel. Here is me preaching the gospel. We're receiving the gospel, and this is the message that Paul and Barnabas bring to the Gentiles, and we are the direct recipients of this good news, and we are a testament to God's ever-unfolding promise of bringing the light of salvation to the ends of the earth, that Jesus is the light of salvation that reaches to the ends of the earth. That's great news, and we see how the Gentiles respond to this news in verse 48 and 49. Look with me at those two verses. It says, and when the Gentiles heard this, being the gospel, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed, verse 49, and the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. The natural response to the proclamation of Christ as Messiah led to the Gentiles rejoicing. I think within this text there is a really evident contrast between the way the Jews and the Gentiles respond to this proclamation. When the Jewish leaders hear this proclamation that Jesus is the Messiah also to the Gentiles, they were filled with jealousy. They threw aside the promises of God. They blasphemed the word of the Lord. And in their unbelief of Jesus as the Messiah, they judged themselves unworthy of eternal life. But when the Gentiles heard this proclamation, they were filled with joy. They threw aside their own idols. They honored the word of the Lord. And in their belief of Jesus as the Messiah, they are judged worthy of possessing eternal life. What a stark contrast that we see in this text between these two. Both groups, the Jews and the Gentiles, heard the gospel. But hearing was not enough to save them, and it's, it's not enough to save us. They needed to believe the gospel. They needed to believe on Jesus as the Messiah, and that's what we have to do as well. So how did they believe on Jesus as the Messiah. Well, the scripture is pretty clear here. Verse 48 says, as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. So men and women believed the gospel and were granted eternal life. They were given eternal life. But notice the order in which these things occurred in the text. 
It says, as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And so what we see here is a very important distinction, I think provides us a little look under the hood of the outworkings of salvation. We see that God appoints people to salvation before the foundation of the world. We see that in Ephesians. We see that in John 15. We see that in Romans 8. And there's other places in Scripture where we see that as well. And so God appoints people to eternal life, and those people believe. And this is exactly what takes place in our text this morning. The gospel is proclaimed, and those whom God has appointed to salvation believe and receive salvation. The light of Christ is made known to them. They believe the word of the Lord, and, in the, and, and their darkness of heart is expelled by the light of Christ. And so, what are they prompted to do? What are we prompted to do after believing? Verse 49, it says, And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. So what happens when the gospel is proclaimed, what happens when people believe the gospel is that the gospel goes forth, that it, uh, people rejoice, and in their rejoicing, they bring the gospel to other people. It continues to spread. When someone announces an engagement, people rejoice. When someone announces a pregnancy or an adoption, people respond in excitement. And then when I start to see a light at the end of this pitch dark maze, I run to the exit with joy because there is something offered to me that saves me, gives me a sense of comfort and peace from what I was once lost in. Why is that? Well, this is the second point of the text, that joy is the natural response to something glorious being revealed. So what do these Gentiles do upon hearing and believing the most glorious revelation that Jesus is the Messiah for them, not only to the Jews? And upon them seeing the light of Christ, their response is what? They go, they share it, they tell others about Christ. They sought to reveal the same glorious truth of the gospel that they received to others who are trapped in spiritual darkness. I think there's a bit of a challenge in that text there, like, do Do we respond that way to the gospel? Do I respond that way when I remind myself of the truth that there is no more condemnation, no more doubt and fear, as we sang about, that we celebrate the truth that Jesus is alive, but do I find joy in that in the way that these Gentiles do when they first believe, that they run and they go tell people and the gospel spreads? Obviously, not everyone did that. Not everyone does that. Look with me in the final three verses here, verses 50 through 52. It says, But the Jews inside of the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and the Holy Spirit. So again, the Jews respond in anger. Again, there's a contrast. The Gentiles are so overjoyed with the fact that Jesus is also the Messiah for them that they go and they spread the word to everyone around them. The Jews, the Jewish leaders at least, uh, as the text says, sought to uh, persecute Paul and Barnabas for proclaiming Christ as Messiah also to the Gentiles. They were filled with anger yet again. And so... Whether Paul and Barnabas received word of persecution or they endured persecution, we're not sure. But regardless of whatever happened, it was enough for them to flee the city and go elsewhere. They go to Iconium. But in doing so, they follow the instructions given to them by Jesus when it comes to dealing with unreceptive people. It says, they shook the dust from their feet and departed. 
the seemingly sad ending to the Gentiles receiving salvation, what seemingly is a sad ending to this first missionary journey, this first half of this missionary journey, Paul and Barnabas are still, what does the text say, filled with joy and the Holy Spirit. We also know that there were plenty of Gentile converts that were here, and so uh, without a doubt, they too were filled with joy and the Holy Spirit in their newfound acceptance in Christ. So on this journey with Paul and Barnabas, we've seen that the light of the gospel is being revealed to the Gentiles. We understand and we see that Jesus is the Messiah to all peoples, tribes, and tongues, that he is the light of salvation that extends even to the ends of the earth. So you may be sitting here this morning, you might be wondering what this can mean for you, or maybe what does it mean to you? What, what does it mean that you know that Christ is the light of salvation that is extended to the ends of the earth? Well, first, we, to the non-believer, we ask that you receive the salvation that is offered to you in Christ. You are the intended audience of this to the ends of the earth salvation that is offered in Christ. In this, you see that the heart God has to provide a Savior who shines light into your darkness. Stop walking around unable to see, disoriented and confused by not knowing what maybe lies in front of you. Stop reaching and grasping for anything that you can find on the walls to get out to try and find a light, to find something that can help you escape the darkness. And stop finding yourself stuck in dead end after dead end Return to Christ. Turn to Christ. God has provided the light for you that you long for and need in Christ. Turn to him and throw aside what cannot save you. Turn from the darkness and embrace the light which expels the darkness. And to the believer, we rejoice that we have been given the light of Christ, even that we are the light of Christ, that we have been given the ministry of reconciliation, that we reflect Christ's light in the, lo- in the way that we live, in the life that we live, and that we too are also the recipients of this to the ends of the earth salvation. Like I said before, we are only here this morning because of the gospel going to the Gentiles. Most of us in this room are not ethnically Jewish, and so we were already outside of God's chosen people. But in this, in the gospel turning to the Gentiles, we have been welcomed And we are the recipients of this to the ends of the earth salvation. And so we take the glorious gospel, we take the revelation of the gospel, and we share it. We go to the nations, we take the light of salvation to the nation of 407 Ridgewood Drive, we take it to the nation of 9 to 5 workers that we work alongside, we take it to the global nations, Canada, we take it to Africa, we take it to China, we just go over the world like Paul and Barnabas have done and take and share the light of Christ, which extends to the ends of the earth. And we not only share the light of Christ with those who are stuck in darkness, but we also share the light of Christ with fellow believers. And one way we remind ourselves of the gospel is in taking the Lord's Supper. We know that if we had been left in our darkness, that we would uh, have awaited righteous judgment for the darkness that was in our hearts. But in Christ... Our darkened hearts have been made light through his death, burial, and resurrection. And in him we have forgiveness of sins. We've been rescued from the domain of darkness. We've been placed into the kingdom of light. And this is what we remember as we partake in the Lord's Supper. We rejoice in that. We remember that truth this morning as we take this supper. What I'm going to do is I'm going to pray for us. I'm going to pray for this time over the supper. Uh, Benji and Emily are going to come up.
and then Trevor will come up and lead us in the liturgy. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you, Father, for just who you are, Father, that your love endures forever. Father, we thank you that it extends to the uttermost, Father, we thank you for your love that saves even us type sinners, Father, those who are so far away from you, Father, there is no one who is outside of your reach, and Father, we once walked among the prince and the powers of the air. Father, we walked in darkness, yet you have shown us the light of Christ, and in that we have received salvation. Father, we have received the gospel through the work of your son, Jesus. Father, we see that, uh, that in, in your love, Father, you have predestined us to be adopted into your kingdom. Father, we thank you for that truth. We celebrate the fact this morning that we only celebrate that through the life of Christ. Father, in his death, burial, and resurrection, we look to that it is the only place that can save us. Father, we are unworthy, undeserving of eternal life, yet through Christ's blood and through his sacrifice, we have been made new. We've been made as white as snow. Father, we thank you for that this morning. We just pray that if there's anyone here, Lord, that does not know you, Father, you will use the work of the Spirit, Father, to just convict them of sin. Father, they will turn to the light of salvation that is offered to them in Christ. They will turn away from the darkness that is in their hearts, Father, and embrace wholeheartedly the gospel. We pray this in Jesus' name.